Hello, this is Brighter Evening, a podcast where we discuss fun, food, and ideas to make the world brighter. Good evening, my name is Josh, and this is Brighter Evening. Tonight, we're going to be talking about money, and I'd like to, to talk about a number of things in economy over the next uh, next few months and in, in episodes. I'm not planning on doing all the episodes one after the, another. But uh, what I am planning on doing is starting with some of the basics. And tonight we're going to talk about money and what money is. And we'll continue on into um, other monetary-related topics after this. Um, but tonight it's money and just, just the very basics. And money is a really incredible invention. Um, it's not something we really think about as having been invented, and we probably don't think about what its purpose is in our, our society in, uh, in the sense of what would our society be like without money very often. I think it's something we can kind of imagine, though, right? If you've watched some of the, you know, kind of post-disaster movies or TV shows, they use the system that predated money in some cases, right? Which is a barter system. In a barter system, you have a lot of difficulties, there has to be a coincidence of wants for required for there to be a trade. In other words, if uh, if I want to trade my my chicken for, say, some rice, I need to find someone who wants a chicken and has rice, and I have to have the chicken, right, and, and want rice, and we, we both have to have that. Now, if there are more than one person involved, right, more than one thing that I want, it it becomes much more complicated. Maybe the amount of rice I want is only worth, you know, a half a chicken. And maybe I also want to get some spices, and that's worth another half of a chicken. So now I've got to find three people, and and maybe there's more intermediaries involved because the spice vendor doesn't want a chicken. He wants something else. Uh, There's a great episode of Malcolm in the Middle uh, I watched years ago where Francis out at... um, out in, I think it was Alaska or something at the time, was setting up a bunch of trades trying to solve some problem that he had. And so, you know, he owed a bunch of stuff to a bunch of people that were coming from other people. It was very complicated. It was because he didn't have the money he needed to solve whatever problem he had. That That's essentially what happens in the barter system. And so money solved that problem. And, and it has, traditionally, if you go kind of read an Econ 101 book, three main purposes. It's a medium of exchange, it's a store of value, and it's a unit of accounting. So we're going to dig into what those terms mean today. So um, I'm not going to necessarily go in the that order. That's kind of the typical order. I'm going to go from um, the, the simpler concepts into the more um, complicated concepts, I think. Um, so let's talk about uh, the idea of a value store. So that's that's one of the easiest things to think about with money. If you're imagining a a bank, right? You put your money in a bank, and the bank holds it for you. It's holding the value for you. And money is um, is of course liquid, right? You can you can use it easily for a variety of things. If you've got cash, that's as opposed to fixed assets, right? Things like a chicken or a house or a dishwasher. That's something that you own that has a value associated with it. 
but it's fixed in place. You'd have to sell it to turn it into money. Um, and so, you know, use money to buy fixed assets and you can use fixed assets and services to get money. But fixed assets retain their value because their value is intrinsic. Money retains its value for a variety of reasons that we're going to talk about. Um, money is also durable. Um, so the the thing about, say, something like gold that's a traditional um, thing used for money is that it lasts a long time. It doesn't dissolve. It doesn't burn up easily. And so if you have a gold, you know that it's durable. The physical money that we use has fairly reasonable durability um, for, for its intended uses. So coins actually are incredibly durable. They have something like a 20-year lifespan. The average uh, bill that you carry in your wallet has something like a nine-month lifespan. But if you were to take a bunch of $100 bills and throw them in a, in a box, keep them there for five years or 10 years, they wouldn't, they wouldn't break down, right? They, they, they're not made of standard paper. Even standard paper wouldn't break down. They're made out of uh, a type of linen. So they're, they're more durable than regular paper. And, and there's some places where the currency is made of plastic. Um, you know, that's, that's some of the more modern technology and currency in some countries. One of the big keys for it to be a store of value is its acceptance by others. So um, if I've got, uh, you know, dollars and I'm in Europe and I try to buy stuff, they're not really interested in dollars. They're interested in euros. I might be able to make something work, though, right, because it's a well-known, established, strong currency. But if I came with Zimbabwe currency and went to Europe or went to the United States, it's very unlikely that someone would accept it, even though it's valid money in Zimbabwe. That's... That's one of the keys. Um, but if we go back to the example of gold coins, I bet if I walked around with some gold coins, I could exchange that for stuff. It would be accepted by others. And so it would be functionally money. Um, you know, dollars and cents, you know, f paper and, and coin currency are relatively liquid. They're fairly easy to move around, at least in the quantities we typically deal with. Um, you know, I can move it from place to place, account to account, um, and put it together as quickly as I need. Um, it's a little bit less so if you're using something like gold, because if you've got um, something other than a standard unit, like a, a coin of gold, then you know the, the gold is going to be pretty valuable on a per ounce basis, and so you're going to you know have to have to break it down into grams of gold or something to to make small purchases. So you don't have quite as much liquidity with gold, but you've probably got more liquidity than with you know, say a piece of land, right? A, a large fixed asset. So that's kind of the concept of a value store for money. Money is, of course, also a medium of exchange, right? And acceptance by others is part of the idea of the value store, right? The reason acceptance by others is necessary as a value store is because if they don't accept it, you can't redeem the value of the money. But acceptance by others is also important as a medium of exchange because I need to go make my purchase, I need someone to accept it so that I can make my exchange. Um, there are major currencies and there are local currencies, right? So we talked about that. This idea of like the Zimbabwe currency in the United States probably isn't going to get much traction. Um, but if I take a dollar to Zimbabwe, I could probably make a purchase with it, at least with some people. Um, and, and the reason for that is pretty simple. The United States dollar is a major currency. Oil is purchased globally in dollars, petrodollars they're called. That that makes oil valuable, or rather makes 
uh, dollars valuable just about everywhere. Most international transactions are you know, in between nations are denominated in dollars going through the United States banking system for a variety of reasons. Um, of course, every country has its own major currency. Um, so you have some countries like Ecuador that have dollarized their economy. And dollarization doesn't necessarily refer to the currency dollar, although in the case of Ecuador it does. The, they use the United States dollar. Um, but there are other countries that have done it, right? They take uh, a, another country's currency and use it. It's uh, really interesting to think about what that means. Um, so you've got, you know, kind of the major currencies, you've got local currencies produced by governments, right? So if you go to Mexico, they have pesos, but there are also currencies that are even smaller than that. Um, you know, for example, uh, there was a, a guy named Joshua Abraham Norton. He was known as Emperor Norton, lived in, uh, in California about a hundred or 120 years ago. And he claimed to be the emperor of the United States. And he produced his own currency, and people accepted it. Um, so it was interesting. He, he was able to go out and, and use this, and it was a very local thing. People didn't really care about Emperor Norton anywhere else. Um, you could say that that's almost like a specialty currency. Um, you know, you've got specialty currencies like tokens at an arcade that have some kind of uh, a value, but they generally say stuff like they, they don't have a face value, or their face value is very small, or something like that. Um, right, you know, you've, you've got all these different currencies that serve different purposes, but generally, you know, you think about the, the major currencies from major countries and, and places like the European Union that generate the euro, those are your, your big currencies, and, and they're just used to make your exchanges. Um, and so, right, you need, a, you need to have some kind of system in place to make the exchange, otherwise it goes back to barter. And so you've got to ask the question of what happens when money can't be used. Because that can't happen in the world today, right? There are some times you just can't put money on something. So I think about organ donation as kind of a quintessential example. Ethically, it's not okay to sell human organs. And so we use a, a rationing system, a list, right? You get on the list and you move up the list until one is available if, if you're so lucky and if not you know it can be a very unfortunate thing for the the person or the family you know hopefully it's uh, if you're ever in that situation it's an organ that um you know they can they can deal with artificially right like a, a kidney and you know you can stay on that list as long as necessary or you can find a donor or something but it's a list um if you look at um say the draft um like the draft in vietnam they used a lottery system Right, rather than having people spend money to get into line, that's how you normally allocate things. Um, the the government could have chosen to pay a lot and see how many people they could get to sign up for, you know, World War Two or the Vietnam War, but instead, with the draft, they used a lottery system to select people. Um, but interestingly, uh, a place where money can't be used and exchanges, typical standard exchanges, are needed, is the zoo. So this is different than the the draft. This is different than the um, the example of organ transplants. This is something where we actually need to make exchanges, or, or at least the zookeepers need to make exchanges. Um, if you look at zoos, they don't want to spend money on animals. They don't want to purchase animals, and there's a few reasons for that. A big part of it is the historic practices around animals, right? They're they're pretty brutal. Um, 
the way they would acquire animals, right? So they would um, they, they would pay people to you know bring them these exotic animals to help bring people into the zoo, and the way they would get them would be you know going out and killing a bunch of tigers and and getting the cub and bringing it in, you know, pretty pretty brutal things that uh, weren't necessarily particularly humane. Um, they set prices for poachers eventually, and permits needed for buying and selling animals were created. Um, so this is this is sort of the idea that there is some amount of um, some amount of regulation around this now. So it, with the Endangered Species Act, there are regulations around buying and selling animals, and it's pretty tough to do. Uh, so to deal with that, they in their books. Right, their their accounting system. They use a um, a nominal value for the animal. So they say that the tiger that they have is worth one dollar, and their lion is worth one dollar, and their fish are worth one dollar each. That gives some value for their accounting purposes, but it it doesn't set a value that they can use to sell. And so instead, zoos use a barter system on a special web- website to facilitate transactions. It's kind of like eBay. They go in and they're like, hey, I've got a hippopotamus um, and I need I need some lions. You know, does anyone want to make a trade? And so that's how they'll actually make the trade uh, f- between their um, between their zoos, right? They, they actually have to revert to the barter system. I've heard that there is some sort of method of doing this based on um, like the number of animals. I couldn't find any evidence for it when I did research, so they pick some benchmark animal, and that's sort of their currency, like a lion is worth, uh, you know, 500 ferrets. I don't know. I don't know exactly how they did it, but that's the rumor I heard. I've not been able to confirm that. Um, But that takes us back to uh, the other topic, right, the unit of accounting. So a, a dollar or some unit of currency, it's a unit of accounting, and the accounting for animals, they they want to account for them financially. They mark a dollar. That's largely a symbolic thing, right? If zoo lost all of its animals, the other assets wouldn't matter. No one's coming to the zoo to see the buildings or to, to eat at the overpriced, not-so-great restaurants. They're coming to the zoo to see the animals. But as a unit of accounting, it's symbolic, right? They're saying that the value of the animal... You know, it's intrinsic and it's it's kind of priceless. Um, but we use units of accounting in lots of places. Um, there's a standard like, you know, uh, home accounting that you do when you're trying to set a budget for your family or the sort of accounting that a company does. Um, you can account for stocks of goods that you have using dollars, right? And so you can figure out we have X percentage or X amount of... Um, you know, food, and you can you can put a value on that, so you can kind of understand the the health of a, a system, whether it's your family finances or a business. Um, a unit of accounting isn't a particularly interesting um, use of money, but it's important to realize that it was part of the innovation, part of what made the modern world possible was this idea of writing down the assets in a standardized way, so that when you look at a, a merchant's books, you understand what's coming in, what's going out, how you make money, and you start being able to do things like make loans, generate interest, um, sell securities, sell futures, 
sell options, all the different things that allow a little bit more complex financing that kind of pushes the world forward because now there's money available to do things, right? You can you can buy a future on an item and you can use that to hedge your risk, but also the farmer selling the future has a guarantee they get the money now for the stuff they're going to produce in the future. So a lot of that stuff helps to make a make the market function efficiently, right? To to allow people producing things to produce enough of it and supply it. And that's that's a really important thing. And so the unit of accounting piece of this is actually fairly important, but it's it's also largely behind the scenes. So let's talk about what the value of a dollar is. This is the the next kind of major question. What's the value of a dollar or euro or yen or a Swiss franc? At a fundamental level, the the value is the value of what you're replacing by barter. So $100 is maybe worth 8 t-shirts or something like that. Um you can you can kind of go and and think about $100 or $1000 or whatever and come up with stuff, right? So $100 is worth a small portion of a house. A $100 is worth uh you know 80 pounds of uh you know low-cost chicken meat. It's worth uh 78 candy bars, right? There's there's a lot of things you could do and what it establishes as you do that is the relative value of things, right? And supply and demand of course plays into that. We're not going to talk too much about supply and demand here, but supply and demand kind of plays into that. So does marketing, so does a lot of other stuff, but it gives us an idea of relative worth. So if we look at the you know the the idea of of this in terms of like say chocolate bars and shirts, even if I want to barter chocolate bars for shirts, I'm not going to use money for my transaction. I have an idea that a shirt is probably worth like 10 chocolate bars because chocolate bar is say you know between a dollar and a dollar fifty, and a shirt's somewhere between you know ten and fifteen dollars for a t-shirt. I'm not talking about a, you know a, a premium t-shirt or anything like that, but just a simple t-shirt. You know, ten to fifteen dollars isn't unreasonable, and so I could go look and say, well, yeah, there a fair trade would be about eleven or twelve. Otherwise, you know, my only data point is how much I want it and how much they want it. So it it does simplify the transaction even in that case, and so the value of a dollar has a double meaning there, right? The value of a dollar is what you can buy with that dollar, but the value of a dollar is also in letting you understand what something is worth relative to something else. And so that's kind of the fundamental concept of a dollar. Do you, When you go make that purchase, you value whatever it is you're looking at more than the money you're holding in your hand. And if we talk about dollars or any of the major currencies, we're generally talking today about fiat currency. Now, a fiat, aside from the Italian car, is a government order, right? The government makes a decree that is a fiat. And fiat currency is the idea that the government says, this is our currency and it is now worth something. And it's pretty hard for government to just do that from scratch, but it's something that happens over time as countries form. They print money. Um, they 
take taxes in it. They meet their obligations to to bondholders, all that stuff, along with the fundamentals of the economy, give fiat currency its value. And this is compared to um, the gold standard, right? Um, or, or any other similar standard. So if you're taking a look at the, the fiat currency you have, it's not really backed by anything other than um, debt, which I don't think we're going to get into in significant detail here. But the the currency was generated as as a a part of a loan, essentially, right? The, that's that's how the system works today, and it's it's a little bit difficult to understand, and it sounds scary to a lot of people when they first encounter it, especially because usually when you're encountering these topics, it's from people who are opposed to that system, and there are reasons to be opposed to the current system, and there's reasons to like the current system, but typically when someone first encounters how fiat currency is generated and it gets its value. It's from someone who's opposed to it, and they're, you know, it, it definitely sounds pretty strange. And and to be honest, a lot of things that happen on a big scale like this do um, the first time you hear them, and maybe maybe after that. Um, so you know, fiat currency is it's got its value because the government says its value. I think the most fundamental value it has is you can pay taxes in it, right? That's that's the only real intrinsic value that fiat currency has is that if you go to the IRS and you hand them dollars, they will accept them. And they won't do that for Bitcoin and they won't do it for other fiat currencies. They won't they won't do it for stocks or bonds or gold. You have to pay in dollars. And so that's where your fundamental value on fiat currency comes from because you do have an obligation to the state to pay taxes. Um, so the thing about fiat is that you end up with inflation and deflation. Um, and if you think about this in terms of barter, What's replaced by barter changes. You can either buy more or less with the same dollar. With inflation, um, you know the value of each dollar is lower. You can buy less stuff. With deflation, the value of each dollar is higher, and so you can buy more stuff. And so if you're seeing inflation in your country, you should spend your money now while you can, while it's still valuable, to get fixed assets. And any kind of fixed asset, if the inflation gets bad enough, if you're seeing you know, hyperinflation in your country, you might want to spend all the money you get today on chocolate bars because the chocolate bars are more valuable today than the money will be tomorrow. I mean, that's that's happened in many countries. And that's what happens when a country gets a little too excited with a printing press and just, you know, starts going with stuff. Um, with deflation, you need to do the opposite thing. With deflation, you should hold off on any purchases as long as you can because your your dollar today is going to be more valuable tomorrow. And, and and that has a real effect, right? When the United States is going through stagflation in the, you know, around the time of the Carter administration, inflation was high enough that restaurants would have to print little labels for their menus to change the prices frequently. Um, on the other hand, in Japan, they went through a long period of deflation and people held off on purchasing things because it didn't make sense. Both of those can be very detrimental to the economy. With the inflation... There's a lot of unknowns, and people make kind of rash purchases because they're trying to get money, you get value out of what they have. They don't want to save because it doesn't make sense to save. With deflation, no one wants to go out and spend, and kind of the economy slows down as a result. So that's kind of where what inflation and deflation really mean. Um, but you have to think about that in terms of um, kind of a, a big picture. So the value of a dollar 
is sort of an aggregation, a summation, a, a co combination of the prices of everything in the market, everything that you could possibly buy, uh, whether it's legal or not, right? It's it's an amalgamation of all of, all the stuff that's for sale, and that's the value of a dollar in 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 this sense. And so, and in inflation in that sense is caused by an increase in the money supply. For example, printing more money. Um, you could also have inflation by the size of the economy decreasing without reducing the money supply. So if we think about the size of the economy in terms of dollars, right, we talk about this figure of GDP, gross domestic product, and that's the value of all the goods and services produced. It doesn't count certain things um, that, that you may want to count, such as, um, you know, the household domestic labor done by, you know, families for their, their family members. It doesn't count um, used sales typically, right? So if I buy something from a thrift shop, um, I'm not generating any new GDP. They're not generating any new GDP because it's not a new good or service. Um, you might you might count the wages of the employees at the thrift shop in GDP, though. So, I mean, it, it doesn't necessarily capture every single thing you might want to count in terms of how healthy the economy is, but it's a pretty good rough figure. Um, it's it's probably the best figure, and there's there's various forms of GDP out there that you can look at. Um, you know, purchasing power parity, um, GDP per capita, um, a few other ones, right? But a dollar is a slice of GDP. And so what you're looking for for a stable currency that's not inflating or deflating is that the slice of GDP remains relatively consistent. So if you have a $10 trillion GDP, then you want a dollar to represent one ten trillionth of the GDP of the country, roughly speaking. Deflation, on the other hand, right? It's, it's the other side of the same coin. It's caused by growth without additional money supply. Right, so your economy grows, but you don't increase the amount of money available in the economy. So, your your GDP goes from ten trillion dollars to twelve trillion dollars, but you didn't. You know, let's say it's in twenty fifteen dollars or something. I don't know, right? But it it grows by twenty percent, but you only have ten trillion dollars that exist. That's all that was printed. If that's the case, you're going to see deflation. You could also reduce the money supply, right? There's a lot of ways you could do that. One is, um, you know, collecting bills and burning them. But money, money supplies in countries are a little more complicated than that because you have the physical money that exists. You also have money that's generated through loans and things like that. When we start talking about the Federal Reserve um, in, in our next episode about this topic, we'll go more into fractional reserve banking and um, bonds and how that interacts with the amount of money that's available. And um, if you want to look into that a little bit before then, you could look at the different types of money supply. There's you know, M0, M1, M2. Um, these these kind of represent different sorts of money that exist with you know cash being the most obvious one, but like money in banks, bonds, loans, they all kind of play into different, um, different levels of money that sort of um, can to a certain extent automatically react to the market and they can be manipulated by central banks to try to either increase or decrease the inflation rate to keep the currency stable. It's not necessary to keep money from inflating. It's necessary to keep it from inflating too much. And likewise with deflation, we probably want to stay away from any major deflation, but slight deflation is probably okay. Um, so again, you increase the money supply and the economy stays the same, inflation. You decrease the money supply with the 
economy staying the same? Deflation. You decrease the economy, but don't decrease the money? Inflation. You grow the economy and don't add money? Deflation. Right? Pretty simple concepts. If you keep keep the size of the economy in balance with the amount of money that exists, then you're going to have a stable currency. People don't like to use a currency that is a poor value store, but they'll still use it as a medium of exchange. Um, if it's a really poor value store, people will start picking up something else, whether it's a more stable for, foreign currency, um, which has been, you know, like the, becomes the de facto currency. That's happened in plenty of countries where they have a local currency, but people prefer to use a foreign one because it's more valuable. Even if they get paid in something else, they'll be really happy if you, you pay them in you know dollars or something instead of whatever that local currency is. Um, the, the most interesting story I've, I've heard about this was the story in Brazil. Brazil went through a period of hyperinflation a number of years ago. And during their period of hyperinflation, things got really bad, right? It was it was everything you could imagine from hyperinflation. You know, the, the price of milk would go up by a factor of three from one day to the next. I mean, something crazy like that. When that's going on, it's very difficult, very difficult to control. And very few countries have been successful. Like I said, Ecuador solved this problem by dollarizing their economy. They just took a foreign currency and said, that's what we're going to use because the U.S. dollar is solid and we can trust the U.S. dollar, at least more than they could trust the Sucre. Brazil took a different tact when this happened. They started publishing a guide every day. And the guide gave the real price and the conversion to the, the currency that they were using. And so, you know, today's real price, it's, you know, milk can be priced in 400 real units. Today, that's worth $9 jillion, right? And, and to, let's just say it's $900,000 uh, for this thing, but it's 400 units. And tomorrow, 400 units is worth $9 because we're inflating like crazy. And so they, they published this guide. People got used to using the real value. And somewhat in secret, the president of Brazil, who um, was, was not a college-educated person, I'm not uh, my memory's not qu not quite sure about this, but I think she, she didn't even graduate from uh, from high school, right? But understood how people think and understood society very well, and so this person, this president, after publishing these for a while, sort of in secret, printed up a currency called the real the real value. And so once people caught on to the real value being stable versus this, you know, crazy hyperinflation for their currency, they released a new currency denominated in the real value. And that's how Brazil got a currency called the real. And so you can see this this hyperinflation happened and it became an unsustainable positive feedback loop. It just went crazy. But when they created a system that focused on the fundamental value rather than printing new money and trying to just keep up with this system. They focused just on the fundamental value, the real value of things, the intrinsic value, right? Milk is valuable because people drink it and they cook with it. Uh, you know, a razor is valuable because people want to shave. And so by pricing things based on this, you know, real value and then giving a conversion, 
people got comfortable again because the value of items, right, this aggregate value in the economy um, was fairly represented by the real. So pretty interesting uh, situation in history because as far as I know, that's pretty unique. It was the first time a country had managed to get out of a hyperinflation without an even worse economic shock or dollarizing their economy with a foreign currency or something, right? They came up with a new way of doing it. They dollarized the economy with their own currency. It's pretty amazing. Um, it's, it's one of the most interesting stories, I think, from the, you know, fr from a financial perspective, at least in the last, uh, you know, last hundred years, right? Uh, you know, f usually the, the financial stories aren't that interesting or they're pretty terrible, but this one is interesting and it, it had a positive outcome. Um, so pretty cool. Um, before, before we close up tonight, I want to just revisit this idea that a dollar represents a fraction of the overall economy in which it operates. So if we um, take a look at the U.S. economy, the GDP is $21.73 trillion, um, at least as of the, the time I did my research. I, I would suspect that with current events, the economy is probably unfortunately contracted quite a lot. Um, but at that rate, the value of one dollar is one twenty-one point seven three trillionth of the economy. That's one way to look at the value of a dollar. Um, you know, the value of a dollar though is is really just a fraction of a larger economy. Um, and I talked about a few of these reasons. One is that You've got the petrodollar, um, which which means that there's demand for dollars outside the country. So even things that aren't part of the United States economy directly because they're denominated in dollars um, contributes to the value of a dollar because there's demand for dollars. And so the dollar is participating in a larger, um, a larger economy than just the United States economy in a way that many other currencies don't. Um, same thing with foreign... Um, dollar denominated trade deals. And you'd say, well, why would, you know, why would the Swiss and the French, you know, if they want to make a deal, convert to dollars? Why won't they just do Swiss francs and euros? It's because keeping your books when you own a lot of different foreign currencies is complicated. And so it's simpler to just go through one intermediary currency, right? If you're buying, you know, if you've got uh, boats and you're selling them to someone and they've got, They've got pesos and you've got euros. You know, if you give a bunch of euros to someone who's using pesos, they're useless and and vice versa, right? So, being able to trade into a, a single foreign currency and then out of it is very valuable because having that single intermediary currency gives a way to um, to to have a transaction of value that is consistent because then you can go take those dollars and use them to trade somewhere else. So in that sense, this this use of foreign um, denominated transactions happening in dollars for countries around the world has the dollar acting as a currency of currencies in some sense, right? It's acting to replace barter among currencies. So again, to me, that's a pretty fascinating concept. Um, and there's a few other few other things that you know. If you really want to include in all the things for the the value of a dollar, another would be seniorage, which is when someone holds a foreign currency in a foreign country. So Ecuador, whatever their economy is, 
Um, they're holding a tremendous amount of U.S. dollars because that's what their economy is, is um, operating in. And so that's called seniorage, and that's where the um, where things are at with, with Ecuador, right? They're holding a lot of this currency. Other countries do it as well. Um, that's kind of like money sitting in the bank in some way as far as the U.S. economy is concerned because it's not directly operating in our economy. And so as a result, that increases the value of a get you know of a dollar on average um and then you you know you've also got things like um you know the the bond market the likelihood of the country to live up to its trade deals and stuff like that so there's a lot of things that go into that that question of what is the value of a dollar and this is i think a pretty good summary of them i'm sure you could probably come up with some more if you were to spend some time and think about it and if you do I'd love to hear hear your ideas in an email. I'd I'd love to, you know, talk about some of that stuff in the future. So check out the the website brighterevening.com to to make some comments. Um like I said, we'll continue talking about this in the future. Uh, I think the next major topic is going to be around the Federal Reserve system. Uh, there are similar systems in other countries, although they're not the same, of course. Uh we'll talk about the Federal Reserve and how it operates and also the idea of fractional reserve banking. Um, and then we're going to talk, I think, about more economic topics as well. So I appreciate you listening tonight, and I hope that uh, this evening has found you well. My name is Josh. This is Brighter Evening. Thank you for listening to Brighter Evening. I hope I've made your evening brighter. You can subscribe to us by RSS on Google or Apple Podcasts or anywhere else you get your podcasts. For more information on the show or this episode, please visit brighterevening.com.